Welcome to the REI Dad Podcast. I am your host, Wayne Hillier, obviously. Uh, today, today we got an awesome guest here, and he is an expert in landlording, evictions, and room rentals, which is which is something that I haven't touched on yet uh, on the podcast. So I'm actually really excited to have uh, this guest on today, and his name is Bill Beko. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Wayne. I'm pretty excited to be here. So this is a, this should be a pretty fun time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, why don't we start off with a little introduction from yourself? Who are you and how did you get started in real estate investing? Okay, I am uh, Bill Biko. I, uh, I've been an investor since 2003. So fun little story, which is actually pretty similar to a lot of the other stories I've heard on your podcast. My wife was pregnant with our second child. Mm -hmm. And we're at that point where we were just wondering, what are we going to do? Are we going to keep on working and making money for everybody else, or is it time for us to do something on our own? So we stumbled across a little book that, I don't know if you've heard of it, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I think just about every investor I've ever talked to said, oh yeah, I read it, first book I read. Um, so anyway, we yeah. uh, read that, and it was just hammered into us that there's gotta be something else out there. Right. We weren't even sure what it was yet, and uh, my wife got invited to a real estate seminar one of the real estate investment network seminars this is back i would say this would be early 2003 uh she went to that with a friend of ours who was already a, a rain member and uh the the short version of the story is she basically signed us up for a five thousand dollar real estate course that night nice. so we ended up taking a ron legrand uh real estate course so ron legrand was mostly uh lease option rent to own type stuff flipping and uh, we signed up for that course. It was in June of 2003. And by August, we had our first property under contract. Um, nice. Learned a, a lot of things in that first uh, property. Uh, one of the key things is that stuff that you learn from US real estate guys doesn't translate to Canada. <laughs> so, keep hearing that. Yeah. <laughs> pretty good uh, real estate lawyer we were introduced to through another investor. And uh, he was able to walk us through the, the quagmires. Uh, from there, we picked up another four properties in the next couple of months and just kind of exploded from there. Um, as time went on, you know, our, our initial goals were we were going to do this real estate, so we had more family time, uh, better future, and it was an aspiration at the time, but we kind of went crazy. And I, I, I've seen with some of the stuff you're doing, a similar type of avenue where suddenly the real estate stuff just explodes. and Right. I mean, we had the same issue because we went from, you know, the, the house we lived in to within four years, I was managing 26 properties. I had 53 rooms that I was dealing with on a weekly basis and time just kind of went out the window. And in our pre-conversation, we talked a little bit, uh, I mentioned landlord burnout and uh, that's something I went through uh, within the last five years and we've just kind of restructured and, and scaled back a lot. But uh, to get back onto the storyline, we expanded like crazy. We got into room rentals, which we'll touch on a little bit later, which led me to a ton of experience with tenants. And the, the thing with tenants is there are so many good tenants, but it is kind of a numbers game. And there are a lot of bad tenants when you deal with a lot of tenants. And I've had over 1,500 tenants since I started. So wow. I've dealt back to the burnout, right? So I've dealt with a lot yeah. of the tenants 
And that kind of led me along the path of figuring out how to get rid of bad tenants. So I became a pretty experienced with evictions and the processes involved with evictions. So originally I was hiring companies to do the evictions for me. And then the RTDRS came along back in 2009. And I started doing some evictions on my own through there and got to the point where I would go in there and I would bump into landlords who were just completely clueless. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not entirely their fault, you know, a portion of it, yes. But back in 2009, when that RTDRS started up, the entire website, the entire process was all government language. It didn't make sense to humans. And, right. you know, the first one I did, it was just like, it was almost trial and error. Um, but kind of got a handle on it. The second one, it was like so much easier because I knew what I was doing at this point. Third one, it was just kind of a, a cakewalk because I'd kind of stumbled onto some of the the easy tactics and it got to the point where every time I'd go in, I'm talking to two or three different landlords who were sitting there confused about the process. And it's like, maybe there's something here. So that led to a website I created called albertaeviction.com where I help landlords all over Alberta and actually into Saskatchewan and BC because they seem to have property here, um, deal with the eviction process. So, you know, we've had, what is it? 500,000 page views on that site since I started. So um, Crazy. a lot of people through there, I created a guide explaining how to use the RTDRS, which we've uh, revised and edited multiple times, uh, sold over 500 copies of that guide since we've started, uh, do lots of consultants help, uh, consultations helping landlords. And as we went along, I discovered how many landlords knew very little. You know, not just about evictions, but about screening tenants, about uh, the landlord process. So I started throwing out some tips on the, the website to help with the landlords, and that evolved into my next phase, which was theeducatedlandlord.com. So this is another website I have going with some courses, and I teach landlords how to screen tenants. And that's a, a little more interesting because instead of being Alberta-specific, I'm actually helping landlords all over the planet. I've got information on room rentals and boarding houses and garage rentals. And I've got a fairly large audience from the US, but I've also got uh, a reasonable following from Australia. I've got landlords from South Africa, the Middle East, Europe, Great Britain, um, all reading some of the information. It's not Alberta specific, it's not rural specific. It's That's what I was gonna ask, is the content all applicable in those other countries? Yeah, it's, it's general landlord information you know simple things like you know you're, you're going through this yourself the more properties you have the more systems you need in place so talking about systems uh, the more properties you have the more important is have uh, consistency so you know one of the one of my favorite tips every one of our properties is the same paint color with white trim go ahead we're lo uh, and I, I apologize for cutting you off we're losing you a bit we lost you for about five seconds there um, so you, okay. you might have to rewind a little bit and maybe even check your connection. Okay. Uh, just had a couple of messages come in. I think that might have uh, bumped into things there. Turned oh, off okay. Skype. Yeah. You're going to have to so, rewind so. about 10, 15 seconds. Okay. So consistent systems. Um, things like painting all of our properties the same paint color with white trim. You know, teaching that to landlords to make their life easier instead of some of the landlords where they've got you know, 15 different paint colors on 10 different properties and, and multiple different colors to keep things simple. Uh, teaching landlords about lock systems. Why, why the paint colors um, specifically? Is it so that they always have the same can of paint that they can always just take to each property? 
pretty close. Um, it's a real time saver. So if you have to repaint a property and it's the same color, you're able to get in there and do one coat. And sometimes mm -hmm. you don't even have to cut in because it all matches. Now, just with the variations in paint, sometimes you're off just a tint and you have to do a full coat. But if you're going into a property that's got a purple room and a blue room and a yellow room, just the headaches repainting, uh, you know, you got to put two, sometimes three coats on to cover these dark colors up. Uh, we, we lost you for about 10 seconds again. I uh, <laughs> have to fight through it, I guess. Uh, I, Internet's always uh, a bit of a pain with this, but uh, do you just want to double check your connection real fast and then we'll get back yeah, to it? Everything's shut down here. It's going to bother me. Challenges of technology, right? Oh, now I've lost you. Where's your volume? I was just checking something. Um, sorry. <laughs> we'll have to, again, we'll have to struggle through this. So hopefully we can get it all fixed up. But, um, you know, you talked about landlord burnout before, and I want to get back on that because um, it, it's funny the way that you said it. And I can't remember the word you said, but you ran into that issue. And it, most people would think that being successful and having that many tenants and, and growing rapidly would not be an issue. It would be a blessing, right? Your hard work is paying off and and yet a lot of people don't realize that you know with growth and with success does come a lot of stress and a lot of weight on your shoulders right well you get crazy busy and you know this relates back to the rooming house stuff and and that was the big challenge so we'll talk about rooming houses here for a minute and i'll, I'll transition along sure so one of the properties we bought was a half duplex uh, back in roughly 2004 and the owner who sold it to us kept the other half of the property. She'd been running both sides as, as rooming houses and living upstairs on the one side. And that's not something we wanted to do. We converted into a, a regular property, but we kept on watching what she was doing. And we saw some of the numbers she was doing. And it's like, that's a lot of cash flow. So she was renting three rooms in the basement of this half duplex for, at the time, I think it was like $120, $125 a week. So she was making. $375 roughly per week out of these rooms. Wow. And we were renting the basement on the other side. You know, again, we're back in 2004 timeframe. I think it was $675 for the basement suite. So she was getting double what we were getting. It's like, you know, it, it really piqued our interest. Mm -hmm. So she eventually got to the point where she was going to sell it. And she reached out to us because she'd seen what we'd done on the other side and said, are you interested? So, of course, it was real estate, so we had to buy it. Yeah. So we ended up buying it, ran the rooming house, and within, you know, I don't even think it was, I don't even think it was two weeks. We're there, we're trying to you know, fix up the property a little bit, get on top of stuff, and I find out one of these guys, I find him shooting up in his room, sitting on the floor. Uh, and I was relatively new, um, but also very irritable about it. So I explained to him how he was leaving in 30 minutes. Um, Which is not the way to do it. No, no, it's not how you do it. I've learned yeah. that since. Uh, but he was pretty agreeable with it because I'm I'm actually a pretty big guy. Um, yeah. So I was very angry and intimidating at the time. So he decided that was probably a good idea. So my wife are, and I are busy working in the other areas. We're waiting for him to leave, and then suddenly we hear somebody else coming in, 
and I go, I, I look up the stairs because it's a lower unit and it's a tenant coming in. And now I'm really confused. So it wasn't even my tenant that was in the room. It was a buddy of his shooting up that looked the same. <laughs> so I, I get even more angry and explain to this guy, you're leaving now. Um, yeah. And uh, as he's starting to go, I notice the rooms were furnished with, at the time it was beds on the floor, which is how we thought it worked, and old crappy TVs. And uh, the TV's missing. And it's like, what's, where's my TV? And he said, well, you came last week to pick it, pick it up because it was broken. And it's like, I never took the TV. You know, so basically he sold the TV for drug money. So yeah. for a great start, um, first couple of weeks of owning this rooming house, and I was ready at that time to just pack it in and say, listen, we're converting it into a regular suite. We're going to get rid of these people. My wife talked me off the ledge and said, maybe we're just doing this wrong. So we kind of re you know, stepped back, rethought it. We got rid of the mattresses on the floor. We got rid of these crappy TVs. We repainted the rooms. We put in nice beds. We put in better TVs. And suddenly we started charging, I think we went from $125 a room up to $145, and then $150, and $160. And miraculously, these bottom feeder tenants that they'd been attracting started to disappear, and we started to get better tenants. Mm. Now, you know, we, were, we started to expand our advertising a little bit. So now we're getting better quality tenants, fewer problems, and it's like maybe we're onto something. And How were you advertising at that time? Well, this is the old days, so it was in the sun, it was in flyers, I was approaching companies. And, uh, you know, we were talking before, we were making three, you know, she was making 375 a week. We're suddenly up to 450 plus a week. Wow. And now I'm starting to see the numbers, and it's like, okay, this is starting to make more sense. So we went from there, and we bought another rooming house, or a property that we designed to become a rooming house. Mm -hmm. And this one was even nicer. So we're charging 175, 180 a week. And it's got five rooms in the house. And things are looking even better. We get approached with some of our marketing. We were, we were some of the we buy houses type people. Yeah. Uh, we got approached by somebody who had a 10 room rooming house that he wanted to sell. And it's like, okay, we've got some experience with this. So we jumped into that and uh, did the same model where we upgraded it, added things in. Uh, you know, all the rooms had TVs, all the. Everything was set for somebody to land there and they were good to go. All they needed to supply was groceries and clothes. We even went to the point where we were, we got in contact with a hotel distributor. We were putting the tiny little shampoo bottles, uh, the tiny little um, soaps, toothbrushes, toothpaste, towels in each of the room. They were all fitted with alarm clocks um, and it was just a perfect landing place. And with that, because the economy was starting to grow as well, we're starting to charge 175, 180, 200 dollars a week for these rooms, so cash flow just started exploding. Wow! And it made it easier and easier to take these properties that didn't work as regular rentals and turn them into rooming houses. So that expanded to the point where we had 10 of these properties, 53 rooms in total, and you know we go back to that 10 room duplex. Um, we actually added an 11th room. So we were running 11 rooms, basically renting $175 a week for 11 rooms. Oh my God. So you can see how the cash flow would just explode. It, that would replace yeah. a lot of people's regular income just off of the one property. But with all this also comes headaches because now you're yeah. dealing with people, you're dealing with people living in close quarters. 
you're dealing with a lot of turnover. <clears throat> and we would get a lot of tenants that would come in and they would expect to only stay for a week because it was a short-term solution, renting by the week. But because we had these systems in place and we set up such nice properties, they'd suddenly go, okay, you know, maybe I'll stay two or three weeks. And suddenly it would evolve into two or three months, which was great. So yeah. it really keep our vacancies down. Uh, part of our marketing, we tied into all the unions in town. We tied into companies that were bringing workers in. Uh, one of the properties that we were supposed to set up as a rooming house uh, we actually talked to a steel company who was working on the ring road in Calgary. They rented the whole property from us for two years for $4,000 a month. Wow. So, I, I mean, it was just, all these pieces just kept falling into place. You know, so. And, and you were managing all this, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. 100%? You were putting the little shampoo bottles in there? Yeah. So, uh, we did have a partner at the beginning who was doing a lot of this stuff, but as we evolved, um, we had a, a separating of the ways. So yeah. roughly 2007 onwards, I was doing all of it. So it was 53 rooms on a weekly basis. Um, again, when you expand like that, you have to have a lot of systems. And that's some of the stuff I was teaching and, and sharing through the educated landlord. So we had processes for signing people in and out. And we had processes for the level of the rooms. And we'd be moving furniture and painting stuff and you know, some of the secrets of the, the businesses again. We were buying these shampoo packages and sheets through the hotel unions or hotel setups. So we were getting discounts. We would pick up, I would go to a, a hotel auction and we'd buy 10 beds, um, 10 desks, 10 dressers, 10 nightstands, 10 lights. And we'd be able to do a whole room for 200, $250. Uh, so, you know, economy of scale, we'd use storage garages to store all the extra knowing that we'd add another room in and mm -hmm. it just kept growing. But, back to the burnout you know you start dealing with 50 odd tenants a week on a weekly basis and i shared this with you before there was a period where i would only get two or three saturdays off a year um and that went on for basically 10 years and mm. the reason is we would collect rent on saturday mornings a lot of these guys get paid on friday you didn't know what time they get home because a lot of trades guys they'd be working they'd hit the pub or the bar afterwards, but you knew they were gonna be there Saturday morning because that was their time off typically. So we'd be able to collect on Saturday morning. So uh, a lot of little techniques and strategies we learned over the years to make that work. But like I said, you know, you're dealing with 50 tenants plus every week along with your regular rentals and it just becomes a little heavy over time. So, so when did you, you hit that point where you, like, cause you slowed down, right? Well, we slowed down. We sold a couple of the rooming houses off. Um, we got to 2015 and you get in that treadmill where, you know, the economy just wasn't really playing fair with us. Um, we kept on thinking it was going to come back. And, and I guess the great thing about the rooms is when the economy is bad, people don't want to commit to leases. So the rooms fill up quite quickly when the economy is good, people can't find places. So the rooms, fill up quite quickly. So, you know, we did, we would just fluctuate rent with the market and, you know, right. at our peak, we were $225 a room at our low point, we were closer to $150 a room. So it was just, uh, it just continued to work. And as times got better, it just made more money. So right. we finally get to around 2015 and I'm starting to go through more of this burnout just because things are going nonstop. And 2015 was a pretty trying year because I'm, I'm burnt out by this point 
And then suddenly I have a bunch of properties in one area of, uh, of Ogden here in Calgary. There was five different properties we had in that area. There was a, a 14 year old arsonist running around the neighborhood who lit three fires in properties. Uh, one of them was in a garage of one of my property, which spread to my house. Oh, so it was a pretty exciting time. Tenants all got out. Um, I was able to relocate three out of the five tenants uh, in the property. Two of them found other places. Three stayed with me for a while in other places. And then I went through the nightmare of dealing with the insurance. And the insurance company, although they honored all the insurance, they said, you know what, this is just too risky for us now. So we've decided to cancel your insurance. So when they cancel your insurance, it creates a real nightmare trying to get new insurance. Right. So we went in a period of 30 days from paying about just under $4,000 a year to right around $14,000 a year for insurance. Oh. So that was uh, stage one within a couple of weeks because it was actually right around uh, October that this happened in 2015. Uh, I evicted another tenant or actually told the tenant he had to be out the next day. Um, I just used a little leverage to get him out. He owed me some money and it's like you're leaving tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Um, the next day, the other tenant in the place calls me back saying somebody broke into his room, stole his Xbox, stole his flat screen TV, stole a bunch of other family heirlooms that he had in there. So I explained, called the police and I went over there and, uh, we know that it's this other guy. So knock on the door, open up the room and the room is even with the top of the dresser and the bed full of garbage. So. He'd been living in this for a couple months, just pizza boxes for days and all kinds of stuff. And this is where it gets a little bit gross. So those are a little queasy might want to tune out. From <laughs> uh, I'm disappointed as it is. So I end up starting to clean it up. You know, this was on the Sunday. I end up going back in on the Tuesday and start cleaning everything up. Uh, he's out of there and I'm finding maggots in some of the pizza boxes i'm finding other creepy crawlies in some of the pizza boxes because it's just been stacking and food and garbage in there and it gets worse because i also find out he wasn't leaving his room to use the bathroom he was peeing into pop cans and beer cans and two liter bottles of pop. it was it was crazy so you know <laughs> probably jesus yeah I, i'd say safely 40 40 cans that I had to pour into the toilet to <laughs> get rid of. And then another 16 two liter bottles of urine that I had to just dispose of in the garbage. And at that point it was like, I, I think I'm done. Um, and I said to my wife, I mean, we've seen, every time we say we've seen everything, something <laughs> new pops up. And, you know, at this point I've talked, I've, I've talked tenants out of fighting. I've talked knives out of tenants' hands. I've found bullets. And she said, you still haven't been stabbed or shot. And I think we need to quit before you get to that next stage where you can say that's happened to. So at that point, we decided it's time to get rid of the rooming houses. We started disposing of them, I guess we'd call it. I ended up selling a couple of them to other landlords who ran them as rooming houses. Uh, one of the fellows uh, said it's probably the best thing he's ever done buying the rooming house because he Bought that one. Um, he was hesitant to buy it. I walked him through all the systems. He kind of said, okay, maybe this does make sense. He ended up buying that one. He used all the systems I left with him and he bought two more, uh, which carried him because he got laid off. Well, that's... Yeah. So he's he's got these three 
rooming houses that are supporting him after he got laid off and he did find work shortly after and that allowed him to expand a little bit more but uh, one of the other ones the, the landlord ran it as a rooming house he's still running it as both of these guys are still running them as rooming houses and then we sold some of the other ones off and and kind of moved on and just kept on with our regular rentals but you know a, a lot of burnout you know a lot of stress dealing with these headaches and, and challenges why do you think you know there were so many bullets and 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 crummy rooms and like in garbage and stuff like that is it was it, it i don't think it was your screening process it was it was it just the the tenant profile for that particular it's there's not a lot of screening with the rooming houses you know i'll run through a series of questions with them on the phone but cash is king in the rooming business you know a right. lot of these guys, that's why they're getting into this they they don't have a huge credit they don't have a lot of money so you do take some risks there's more challenges you're definitely dealing with a lower profile of tenants and one of my main ways of weeding people out was a they had to have cash to be able to get in and b i charge more than a lot of the other places so mm -hmm. that weeds out a lot of the really sketchy individuals but it happens so you're yeah. dealing all kinds of trades peoples and i mean the great thing with dealing with unions is if one of the union guys had come to me through the union it was a quick simple call over to the union hall going hey um you guys sent me this guy and he's not paying me money and right. it would be amazing how quickly they would suddenly come up with money because now the union was putting pressure on him basically going listen we're going to pull your ticket for working in alberta if you don't pay this guy right and that was a great tactic, but not everybody was from one of the union halls. You know, some of these guys were people who would just find me through my ads, through my marketing, uh, and we were everywhere. We'd run ads, uh, you know, online. We, I was in all of the different websites. I was in Kijiji, Craigslist, and interesting details here. Uh, I would get all my local people from Kijiji. I would get tons of people from Vancouver and Toronto via Craigslist. Um, just different markets, different ways of reaching people. And you know, these are different tactics and strategies we would pick up along the way. It wasn't a matter of just advertising local. There were so many people moving from Newfoundland and Ontario out here for work in the, in the mid 2000s and it just kind of transitioned. So we had to be a little bit of everywhere. Uh, right. And so I'm going all over the place with this uh, little chat here, but there's just so many. Oh, no, it's fantastic. Fun details. <laughs> I, I do have a question and that's, you know, I know a lot of people starting out their ambition their goal is to i gotta leave my job i don't want to i don't want to be a nine to five anymore i just i want to i want to build enough cash flow so i can leave my job and live the life my life the way that i want to live it on my own terms be my own boss so someone who's just kind of tuning into this they're like okay this could actually work it's high cash flow and yes i'm still gonna have to turn the crank every day every day i'm gonna have to collect the money on saturdays this could be a fast solution for me if I can get a couple properties and get high cash flow. Now, you quit and you sold a bunch of those properties off because of the fact that you burnt out. And it might just be the amount that you had, but would you recommend this to others today as a solution? My disclaimer to people who get into this when I talk to them about this is have an exit plan and do this for five to seven years. So your plan immediately is to use these rooming houses to get out of that job you're looking at. So you can get that increased cash flow, you can move forward, you can suddenly change stuff up. And you know, we look back at that 10 unit duplex. We were making in excess of $30,000 a year off of that one property alone. 
So after all the expenses. So that, that goes a huge way towards replacing somebody's job. Yeah. Know, somebody you're starting. And suddenly, if you're not working 40, 50 hours a week, you've got a lot more time to focus on real estate. And that's kind of how our business panned out. Now, we had more stuff going on. Uh, we, can, we can dwell on that a little bit as well. And maybe I'll just backtrack onto that. So when we started out, you know, again, you've only got so much money. Right. You can only buy so many properties on your own. So our strategy was initially we were flippers and we got stuck with a rental property because we couldn't sell it. We turned it into a rental. That's when we realized the power of rental properties. But we also realized the power of flipping because that gave us cash to buy more properties. So we would basically flip a property, build up enough cash that we had money to live off along with all the cash flow. We'd flip another property. We'd create a down payment out of it. Sometimes we'd have to flip two properties to get that down payment money. We'd buy a rental property. We'd buy another flip property. We'd do it again. We'd buy another rental property. After we ran a rental property for you know nine months, 12 months, we'd have all these cash flow numbers off of it. And we'd approach investors going, here's what it's doing. And they could buy in. And at this point, it was worth more. So we'd get even more money in. Then we'd take that money, go buy another rental property. Mm-hmm. And just kind of grow and grow and grow and stack upon itself. So, and with the rooming houses, it was actually quite a bit easier to bring people into rooming houses once they understood the concept and once they saw the cash flow. Right. Uh, there was huge cash flow out of it, and it was easier to get money into that. So, we were able to expand those as well. You know, and we just leveraged all of our experience. They put in money, we put in time and tons of energy. So, did you do? You- do you find the rooming houses like or houses with more bedrooms, say more than your standard three to four bedrooms? Are they significantly more expensive? Are they hard hard to find? They were actually easier to find. Um, again, we catered to when you're thinking rooming houses, you want to make sure you're picking working class neighborhoods. Right. Not necessarily the, the low end working class neighborhoods, but where there's a lot of blue collar workers because you're going to attract a lot of tradespeople. And mm-hmm. particularly Ogden, like I mentioned here in Calgary. You know, it was a great neighborhood and, you know, it's 20 minutes from downtown by bus. It's 10 minutes from industrial areas. It's right beside major, major uh, transit. Uh, we've got uh, Deerfoot Trail and Glenmore are right beside it. We've got, you know, a new industrial, a new mini downtown core that's just uh, on the other side of the district south of it. So there's a lot of work and available things nearby. So it was just ideal, you know, and because we were picking that area, it was a, a lower priced area. So we were getting half duplexes or we were getting houses in that $300,000 range. Right. And yes, you could rent these as suited places and you'd get you know 1,400 upstairs, maybe 900 downstairs, $2,300 a month. Or we could rent five bedrooms at $200 a week and get $4,000 out of it. So yeah. we had to cover utilities and internet and these other expenses, but you know, it would be just crazy how much cash flow you can get out of this. Mm-hmm. One half duplex we bought for $200,000. I've got four guys that are paying $200 a week and one guy paying 180 a week. And I had those tenants for three years straight. Wow. Yeah, nobody left. It was just great. Of course, everything went downhill really fast on that third year. <laughs> yeah. It's changed over, but, uh, you know, when things go well, it's just, it's so easy. Mm-hmm. 
I, uh, I've got a couple questions here actually before we kind of, I want to change directions, but uh, Kathy had asked, um, what kind of advertising would you use today during COVID? Uh, you know, talking to the guys who are still doing this, they're still running the same kind of ads. They're on Kijiji. Kijiji's changed a little bit in structure, mm -hmm. uh, but you'd still be running the Kijiji ads. Uh, my marketing model, I would still be going after the unions. There's still union people you know, coming to Calgary for some of the work. Um, I'd be hanging ads in, in local uh, grocery stores because I try to put all of my stuff in the same area. Some of the other areas I worked with were immigration lawyers. Um, really? I, I was talking with immigration lawyers and actually foreign workers, um, bringing foreign workers into town. And, you know, we were getting people from Poland, from Germany, from all over Mexico coming in. And, you know, some of them were only there short term. I worked with some churches, uh, which was kind of hit and miss because they were bringing in, be it missionary people or looking for places for people who, uh, didn't quite fit into proper society and needed uh, shelter, and that didn't necessarily work. Uh, some of our worst experiments were dealing with um, uh, some of the housing people here in Calgary who were taking people off the streets. We thought that would be a great thing. We'd get, you know, we'd help people off the streets. We'd get paid by government agencies. Uh, we did that little experiment. I think that was in 2010. We had 13 tenants through those programs. I evicted 11 of them. And two of them I will never let back into my places. So it didn't work out quite as quite as planned. Mm. Um, so that was that was some of the challenges. Um, I see Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Has asked a question about mortgages on the properties as well. Yeah, I'll add that up there. She asked, how did you get a mortgage on the rooming house? Some banks want a single lease. Yeah, that, that can be a little more challenging. Uh, it was a lot easier when we were doing it. Um, the rules were a little bit more wide open. Right. So we didn't have quite as many challenges at the time. So you've also, <laughs> this is high back, uh, you've also got, uh, you know, vendor take backs. You know, we, we arranged some of those in some cases. Um, so right. there's still lots of different options. Uh, agreements for sales would still work in cases like this. You know, so you'd be able to, to manipulate those into your, your plan. And I mean, this is the thing as a real estate investor. The rules continually change. It seems like, you know, when I started, you could assume mortgages. Mm -hmm. And you know, it was awesome because we were able to rack up a bunch of properties that way. And then they took assumptions off the table. So you had to qualify. And, you know, still it worked. And then we were bringing in other people's money. And then we were bringing in other people putting in mortgages. And you just had to move along and adjust as the rules change. You know, you would what, exactly. One of our favorite flip scenarios, which we used to do, uh, we dealt with a lot of people who were going into foreclosure. So we would buy these properties, we'd have an agreement with the people, it would be an extended close, it would be a six to a nine month close, we'd catch up all of the foreclosure uh, payments, and we continue to make payments, the people would move out, we'd give them money to move out, and we would do all the renovations in a two to three month period. Okay. That would give us three to six months to sell the property. And the purchase contract was worded that we would do a simultaneous close on the end. So we buy something for, you know, we'll, I'll make up some numbers. We'd buy it for 300,000. We'd drop 25 grand to catch everything up. We'd do 25 grand worth of renovations and we'd sell it for 400. So we'd make, you know, 30 or 40 grand on the back end. Wow. So, you know, without getting financing. <laughs> 
But then they change the rules with simultaneous closes, which is where something like an agreement for sale comes into play now, where you can still make right. it. So you know, it, it all depends on how the rules fit and how you can fit within those rules as they continually change to make it harder or, or less, less fruitful, I guess we could say. Mm -hmm. you, know, you used to be able to put 5% down on a rental and then it was 10% and then it was 20%. And you know, the more properties you got, the harder it was to get mortgages and you know, it, it, just a continuous stream of roadblocks along the way. But you adapt, you learn how the rules work. You talk to other investors who are a little bit higher up in the food chain and what are you doing? And you just grow and grow and grow. So. Yeah. And, and while you were growing, because you talked about just rapid growth, it all just came really fast, fast success. You were doing this with a young family as well, weren't you? Yeah. And uh, I touched on this uh, in our pre-conversation as well. Yeah. So, because you obviously know the theme about the podcast is, you know, we talk about education, we talk about, you know, inspiration, but as well, we, t we try and focus on, on, on the, the life aspect of it and why you're doing it and, and, and the balance of it, because it's not, it's not all about getting as many doors as possible. Um, if, if your family's beside you and, and, and they're not getting the attention, right. And, and then you look back and I see so many people who are so successful and they look back and like, Oh, I wish I would have spent more time with my kid. Yeah, right? exactly. And I mean, we like for you, well, we, uh, just to put it into perspective in about a four, four and a half year period, we ended up buying 50 properties. Um, and a lot of those involved a ton of renovations, which, you know, back to having smart people surrounding us. We were brilliant when we started. And, you know, the best way to save money when you buy rental properties is to do all the work yourself and drag it out for three or four months because you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You save all that money, right? You, you save all that money on. on yeah. <laughs> so uh, it, it took us, a, you know, a year, two years of doing that before some of our smarter friends said, what the hell are you doing? Right. It's like, you know, you're spending all this time doing it. What are your carrying costs? Because a lot of the carrying costs were heavier because we were using borrowed money. And it's like, we do the math and it's like, oh yeah, I guess if we brought a contractor in, paid him five grand and got it done in a month, month and a half, instead of us dragging it out for three or four months, you know, it's pretty close to the same. Plus we're turning the money faster. Plus we're growing faster. So, you know, it was that aha moment, you know, mm -hmm. being smart to actually being smart and, yeah. and doing some of that. But in that time period, we're, painting properties, we're bringing friends in to help paint properties, we're teaching some of our friends you know, how to change plugs because you know, I, I've become incredibly handy, I guess you could say, so I can do everything from plumbing to electrical to breakers to all kinds of fun stuff and share some of that knowledge along the way with people. I know my limits, um, I'm not gonna do, I'm not gonna replace a furnace and I'm not gonna do carpets because my knees are shot. Um, so we bring people in for the appropriate jobs and we also bring people in for all the other jobs for the most part now. But at a certain point you go, what's the time versus the money? You know, if, if it's going to take five days to get a painter in and I can go in and do it in a couple hours today, just to paint a room, I'll just go in and get it done. So you just got to figure out that math along the way. But back to the point of family, we were doing so much of this. We were actually dragging our kids our, our young, you know, at the time, four or five year old and two and three year old to, to properties and, giving them coloring books and getting them busy doing stuff where we're painting mm -hmm. and patching. And it got to the point where, you know, that kind of didn't make sense. So we actually ended up hiring a nanny. So we had a nanny to take care of stuff, which made a huge difference because we would come home to the property and our, our home 
yeah. and our laundry's done and we'd have more time for the kids because we're not doing all this other stuff. And it, it was it was a great little change of pace. Uh, but then we got to the point where we were still so busy. And one of the defining moments of busy was back in 2006. Uh, I had come home from one of the properties. My wife was busy cooking in the kitchen and we hear a thud out on the outside somewhere, uh, out in the patio and didn't know what it was and almost just walked away, but went to look. And it was my three-year-old daughter had fallen out of the upper story window. She must have pressed against the screen looking out and she'd climbed up on her bed, climbed up on the headboard and fell out through the window. So sheer panic, um, did all the wrong things. Uh, and as a, as a dad, you can go through this as well. Sheer panic. Um, Stressing me out just thinking about it, man. So she wasn't breathing. Uh, she'd fallen on her face. I did all the wrong things. I picked her up and brought her into the house. Uh, it had knocked all the wind out of her, so she did start breathing, but we called the ambulance. Well, we, my wife called the ambulance. We sent my other daughter over to the neighbors. Um, you know, everybody kind of helped out getting things organized. The, the paramedics were just fabulous. Uh, and, you know, we, we lament about the healthcare system and weights and everything. And what you have to appreciate, and I've gone through this a few different times now, is when there's a real emergency, that our health services are just top notch, you know. So they were, they were just incredible. The way they helped out, the way they they took care of things, and the end result is she was fine. Um, she'd broken some bones in her face. Uh, she broke her ankle. Uh, she spent quite a few days in the hospital, um, but we were able with the structure we had in place to just go hold it. You know, we're just shutting all this down. We had friends that, in real estate who would, were picking up some of the pieces and just carrying stuff for us. And we were able to just step back and go, you know, we've got to change some stuff up. So, you know, later that summer, as she was all healed up, we uh, ended up going on a, a two-week vacation, just driving around through BC, visiting friends and family and stuff, and uh, structured in more vacations after that. But it's it's one of those wake-up calls. And a lot of us get, as you said, where's the next door? Where's the next property? We get so caught up that we just want to keep on growing and growing. And it's it's a drug. <laughs> it's a drug. It really you know, is. Uh, we're at property number 10. When are we going to be at 15? Oh, Jimmy's at 17. What if we get to 20? And, you know, you, you just got to step back and reevaluate some of this stuff. And on the positive side, you know, let's talk about some of the positives about real estate. So back in 2007, after a lot of this had happened, and I, I, I'll step back a little bit more. Uh, in 2005, my mother passed away. She had uh, she had cancer. She'd been sick for a while. Beautiful thing about real estate was I was able to take time off and go spend weekends it's a couple hours away from where, where we live to, to hang out with mom and dad and spend time at the hospital. So th that was nice. I couldn't have done that with a day job quite the same way. So real estate was great that way. Uh, my father passed away in 2007, just after we moved to a new property. So again, I was able to take time and deal with the, the estates and go back and visit. And you know that's stuff that people force themselves to do when they have jobs, but it was so much easier and, and able to move around. And then when we're in the new property, and I'm in a lake community, uh, I would do a ton of my work in the mornings and a ton of my work in the evening. So I'd meet tenants in the mornings and I'd do, uh, I used to write a lot of articles in the mornings and it would give me the afternoons off. So my day would start typically at 5 or 5.30 in the morning. I'd be done a lot of my stuff by 11, 11.30. I could take my kids to the lake 
just about every day during the summer for an hour, two hours. And I mean, it was great. So I did, I would spend 30 days at the lake um, during you know, July and August as they were out of school. And then again, I would go out in the evenings meeting tenants and, and doing stuff. So the flexibility and the, the beauty of, of real estate to be able to do stuff like that. And again, my world was different because a lot of that was rooming house orientated. So mm -hmm. I worked around, uh, you know, when my tenants were off, which was typically evenings. So, but uh, yeah, that's, uh, real estate can change a lot of things for you both good good and bad i guess so yeah it's uh, i, I want to yeah <laughs> i i i i've known i knew about that story already and i knew it was coming and it still doesn't matter it still it still fucks with you i'm still i'm, I'm sure it still messes with you too oh, yeah. uh, you i i see some of the pictures back when she was that age and you know face all bruised up and it's just <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's your job. You're supposed to protect them, you know, but you're also supposed to let them go. And it's, it's this weird balance of like, where's that? Know, line? Why are you being a helicopter parent? Well, she's playing in the middle of effing street. <laughs> she's going to get hit by a car. The odds are not in her favor, Yeah, yeah. but you, you gotta let them. Oh man, it's horrible. But uh, that's not the point on this. The point is, is that, you know, you were able to, to take a step back and to spend that time with your daughter there, you're able to take that time to spend with your, with your parents. Um, you know, do you have, do you have any tips or routines for someone who's maybe approaching this, this, this scenario of, you know, I've got rapid growth, but like, what do I do? Do I, do I, do I turn the dial down to seven? Do I, do I, compartmentalize it do i do i get a routine like how do i make sure that i don't i don't make the mistake of of not spending the time with my family or or, or like how, how how would you recommend someone do it how would you what tips would you give someone i think you really have to start blocking out time and making plans and if you start planning in advance and it's like hey we're gonna spend this week visiting the in-laws um and December. We're going to spend this week in March going to Disneyland. We're going to spend this week in whatever going here. You know, give yourself those breaks. You know, make sure you you've split off three, four, six weeks a year that you're spending that time with the family. Um, one of the nice things we used to do at Christmas, you know, as I mentioned with the rooming houses, I was only getting two or three Saturdays off a year. So mm -hmm. when Saturdays fell around Christmas, I would have to spend a couple extra weeks in advance coordinating with the tenants going, listen, I'm not coming on Saturday because it's Christmas Day to collect rent. So either you have to pay me two weeks a week before or we're going to make some kind of payment plan so that you're paid. You know, I'll come by on the Thursday, but right. we got to restructure it. So I would end up booking myself typically a whole week off at Christmas, which was great just to hang out with family. So, you know, you really have to spend the time forcing yourself to plan it in advance though. Otherwise it just doesn't fall into play. You know, there's too many things going on. Did I just cut out there again for a second? You're good. You're good. Another message came in. So yeah, I heard that one. <laughs> um, so, and, and so you're putting those things in place first and then you're, what you're saying is building your business around it and building your schedule around that, yeah, making exactly. sure you're putting in the big rocks first. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise it, life just gets in the way. Oh, you know, there'll always be something. 
There's always going to be some stupid email or some stupid phone call, which means absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. It'll always take your attention away. And I was almost late for this interview. I'm frantically running around because I'm trying to deal with small little messages. And I know you laughed about it because because Gabby, my wife, made fun of me about it online. But uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's always going to be something. And I think that um, you're, you're right. If you think about the things that are most important first and then you build your, your the rest of your schedule around it, you'll make sure that you never miss the most important things. Yeah. So, you know, some things there will be overlap, um, but you just try to reduce those and, and plan in advance and things work better. I mean, it yeah. even comes down to your, your rental properties. You know, when you have a plan for your property, it works so much better than going, okay, let's try this and then we'll change it as we go along. Oh, yeah. I see it online so much, man. I have to bite my tongue. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. You know, we bought this house and we've done all this stuff. Should we do this or that? It's a little late to be asking that question. Mm -hmm. but, you know, one of the early parts of your plan. So education is is so, so important. And a lot of I know early on it's it's hard to fathom the idea of i barely have enough money for a down payment you're telling me i need to go invest five to ten thousand dollars in my education yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you do <laughs> i'm sorry you don't sure. just you don't just decide that you want to go build a house and say it's okay i'll figure it out i've seen someone else build a house no you gotta go to carpentry school like just like anything this is this is not something you can just dabble in if you want to do it if you want to do it right and you want to be successful but you um, long term, you need to invest in yourself to learn this information. Yes. And, you know, I'm I'm easily over 60 grand now um, that we've spent on on training and education. And. Yeah. And have, has it paid for itself? Um, just about everything's paid for itself multiple times over. Yeah, exactly. And, and whether it's you know real estate knowledge or. Uh, marketing knowledge or you know sales training you know, I've, I've done all these different things to help move this process along and you you change up as you go along you learn from your mistakes and one of the key things is don't make the same mistake twice right exactly but you're gonna make mistakes and it's not necessarily a bad thing just don't make the big expensive mistakes too often <laughs> exactly exactly we um, we're, we're getting close to that one hour mark, but there is, and this has been so amazing. I, thank you so much for everything that you've shared. Um, there is something I want to touch on because you, you do have an evictions um, website as well, where you, you, you touched on it very briefly about, you know, you, you offer, you know, education for evictions as well. And, and though we don't have enough time to kind of really go deep into that subject, um, evictions and tenants trashing the place and all that kind of stuff is, is, really at the front of what everyone, you know, um, looks at when they look at real estate investing, they always assume the worst. What happens if they don't do what they're supposed to do? Yeah. I'd like to ask you if you have any tips or tricks to, to proactively plan for that so that, you know, yes, evictions are going to happen. You cannot control what other people do, but you can put a lot of measures and, 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 and processes in place or procedures in place to make sure that you are mitigating your risk to the best of your ability. So, you know, what do you, what tips do you give for, for preparing for evictions in the future or for avoiding them? Two big things. Um, the first one is your property itself. Okay. We would typically take our property and upgrade it so it was better than just about every property in the neighborhood. And we would charge a little bit more. 
So if the guy down the street's charging $900, we're charging $975, and it's nicer. So we would automatically weed out the bottom feeder tenants again who are looking for the cheapest possible place because they have no money. Right. We got a nicer place that would attract more people who would go, wow, I want to live here. So that was stage one. Stage two was screening. And that's something, you know, I, I have a screening course on my website that I've got landlords all over the, the planet basically who have taken. And we go into depth on, you know, checking all the references and doing credit reports and making sure you get the best possible tenant in place because that gets rid of most of your problems. There are things that will happen. Somebody will get divorced, somebody will split up, somebody will lose a job, and maybe you end up down the eviction path at some point. But if you get good people to start with, it's going to get rid of 90% of your headaches. And if you have that good property that they want to call a home, that they like and love to come home to, you know, it's just going to be that much simpler. Uh, rooms are different, <laughs> entirely different story. But when you have the regular rentals, you know, if you do that proper screening and, and follow all the, the standard practices of making sure you're doing all the checks, uh, all the reference checks, just huge difference. So should I throw in a key tip here? When, when tenants, what bad tenants will do, they'll give you fake references. Yeah. So we're not going to give you bad ones. Yeah. Whenever you get phone numbers, always do a Google search and see where they take you. And okay. if they're giving you employer numbers. You know, here's my boss. Here's his direct number. Okay. So he works at Jimmy's Electronic Motors. Okay. Look up Jimmy's Electronic Motors. Call directly into Jimmy's Electronic Motors and ask to speak to the person. Do not call directly to the cell phone. Um, and as far as landlord references, the current landlord is going to give you the worst possible weighted reference because if they're a bad tenant, they're not going to tell you they're a bad tenant because they want to get rid of them. They're going <laughs> to go, yeah, yeah. They were uh, they were really interesting people. Interesting could be a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to talk to the previous landlord and if you can find them. And then the next trick is, again, when you're calling that landlord for a reference, a lot of tenants who are bad will give their friends as a landlord reference. Don't say I'm calling to check a reference on Sammy. The first thing you do is I'm calling about your rental. And if um, it is a landlord, they'll go, it's full or I don't have anything available. If it's a fake landlord, they'll go, what are you talking about? It's like, sorry, I must have the wrong number, and you're done. So that's a pro tip right there. Um, simple little thing, but it, it just changes the, the game a little bit. Very, very, very interesting. I love that. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, you know, one other thing I want to ask you is obviously, like you said, like 90%, you can you can you can do let me rephrase that question. Um, you can set yourself up for as much success as possible, but there is always going to be things that are going to happen. Like you said, divorces or breakups and stuff like that. Um, is there any information that you would recommend gathering at the beginning to prepare yourself for a possible RTDRS hearing or um, a court hearing in the event of an eviction? The secret to winning a hearing is documentation. Right. So you want to have as much documentation as possible. So this starts with your application. You know, you want a pretty thorough application. So you have all the information on the tenant along with any emergency contacts. 
And this was a, a huge thing in the rooming house stuff. And, you know, I would segue into emergency contacts. A lot of people who were semi-transient wouldn't necessarily have good contacts. Um, but my trick with that is I would lead into it and go, listen, so you come home from work one day, you're exhausted, you trip and fall down the stairs. Who am I going to call first? You know, should I call your mom, your dad? What number should I call? And they would be more than willing to give me a phone number and a name to call versus right. going, hey, in case of an emergency and I have to track you down later because you owe me money, who would I call? Right. So, so just kind of positioning things like that. Same thing on your application. You know, who would your emergency contacts be in case there's an accident or an issue? Or you, know, you, you get that information, then it's just more people to follow up on. Again, it may not necessarily work out because we've called moms and dads, and they've gone. We don't even talk to them anymore. Mm. So, you, you just never know. But the more contacts you have, uh, another thing with your credit application, and you know. When people fill out the credit application, this is a long-term thing. So I'm getting ahead of myself here. When you go through the RTDRS, if you get a judgment against somebody, quite often you don't get paid. Just because you have the paper saying that you're going to get money doesn't mean they can actually pay you. They may not have money. They may avoid you. They may put you so down, far down on the list you never get paid. Right. Uh, but the application has got their information on it saying that it's okay to get a credit check. You're still able to do a credit check on them six to nine months after the fact. Okay. That will tell you where they may be working and where they may be living. Which uh, gives you an avenue to potentially go after them if there's additional damages. Uh, you can garnish their wages if you know where they're working. You can serve them new paperwork for additional damages or, or additional issues because now you may know where they're living. So just some extra bonus stuff on the back end. Back to documentation. Because I go all over the place. Sorry about this. Right. <laughs> documentation as soon as you start having issues you need to have some kind of paper trail on that and a lot of these conversations end up being verbal conversations where you're talking to the tenant discussing this follow it up with a letter slash email saying hey this is what we discussed you know you said that you're going to have a little challenge getting me money on the first you're going to have it to me on the third i just wanted to make sure that that was clear that's exactly what you said are we correct about that and should i come by on the first on the third to pick it up or are you going to just e-transfer it or how am i getting that money mm -hmm. a little bit of a paper trail you follow it up with a text message um going hey i sent you that email off i just want to confirm you got that and that all made sense they respond back now you've got two pieces of paper trail so my typical application for an rtdrs hearing is anywhere between 80 to 120 pages so, you know, I just stack everything in there, showing a, a trail of everything that's going on. I also create timelines going, this is when the issue started. This is what they said. This is what happened. This is why we're here. You know, and they can't argue that if you exactly. have all the documentation. Exactly. It's going to be like, well, I never said that. Um, refer yeah, to section F, and that's right here. And yeah, here's our text conversation about it. Yeah. Yeah. The facts are the facts, and the act is the act. Exactly. Stick so. to the facts, stick to the act, and you'll be just fine. I, I do have one last question before we go, and and this is actually something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, since we started, now I liked. Let me rewind a little bit. I liked taking post dated checks because in my mind, I thought post dated checks. I'm not waiting until seven o'clock the night before or the, the night of the first being like, they haven't sent any transfer yet. They haven't sent like, Should I text them? Should I not text them? Eh, it's still seven o'clock. They still have a couple hours left. So I thought post-dated checks is great. Gabby would line them all up. My wife would line them all up and take pictures of them. 
done. 15 minutes, cool. But then we started running into problems where they would bounce. And we wouldn't find out from the bank until like 10 days later. And then, of course, the tenant would be like, oh, sorry, I didn't have enough money in my accounts. Uh, yeah, just I'll send you the $40 charge or whatever. Sorry about that. I, I was moving money around. And they're like, you're not going to charge me the, the late fee, are you? And, like, then you feel like a, like a, you know, like a, like a dink. So, you know, it wasn't my fault. I don't have that money. So then we started switching to e-transfers. Now here's, now I'll fast forward. Now here's my problem. Now with that, because we don't have checks from their banks, I don't know where to find or how to find what bank they use in order to garnish wages or sorry, to freeze their account later on. It, when you're doing, um, when you're, when you're trying to uh, collect money. So how do you find out which bank they're using in order to get money out of their account? It is buried in the e-transfer. So if you, it, Mackenzie Wilson, who you had on a little while ago, has got a, I believe you put a video together about this, talking about how to read the headers on these uh, emails to see where the transfers are, are being coming from. Really? So you can look back to find out which bank they're coming from. Now that doesn't necessarily always work because some of the banks don't play the same way as far as garnishing goes. You have to go to the specific branch. Right. Uh, but that may be on part of your application originally as well. Asking what bank they use. Exactly. Kind of goes back to that thing of like, hey, you know, what's your new address in case I ever need to come and hunt you down? What bank are you using in case I ever need to go and take money from your bank account? That you put it on there, you hope you get the right answers. And right. you narrowed it down, you've got the right people. It's it, You're playing the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. you know, it, I had a discussion with one of the other landlords. I, I'm a member of, I don't know, half a dozen, maybe maybe more different landlord groups from US and North America based to Alberta and Central Alberta based. And uh, one of them was mentioning that how many bad tenants are out there, like the majority of the tenants are bad. and my comment is that I would say well over 60% of the tenants out there are really good. Maybe not necessarily really good, but pretty good. You know, you probably got another 20% that are exceptional. And then the remainder kind of fit in that bad to really bad to horrible. Mm -hmm. And all you ever hear about are the really bad and horrible ones. Yeah. You know, the, the one landlord group here in Alberta that I'm, you know, there's 18, 1900 landlords you hear a couple stories a week, maybe half a dozen stories a week about the bad landlord, bad landlord or bad tenants. Well, that leaves 17, almost 1800 other landlords with good tenants. And how many of those landlords have also got good tenants? So we're not hearing all the, the great tenants and good tenant stories. So yeah. we get swayed by the bad tenant stories because you know, if it, if it bleeds, it leads, right? 100%. I, um, I'm going to do one last question before we go, um, just because uh, Barb asked, had asked it. And she asked, if you have a successful claim and the former tenant has moved provinces, uh, so to another province, what tips do you have for collecting? So what I tell a lot of landlords is, how much time and energy do you want to put into this? You know, if it's $500, you're better off typically just walking away. You know, if you want to make a point, you can keep on pushing. Um, if it's less than about $1,500 to me, it's just not going to be worth my time and energy unless I'm trying to make a point. So if you wanted, you could reach out to a collection agency. There's lots of collection agencies. They'll take a big chunk of the money that you'll potentially receive, but a little bit better than none. Um, 
if you want to do the leg work yourself and you can find out where they work, you can garnish their wages. And it's a long, complicated process going to other provinces. Um, so then you come back to that full circle of how much time and energy is it going to take me to collect? You know, they owe me $1,500. I'm going to have to spend 20 hours trying to do all this. My time's worth $5 an hour, so it's worthwhile. If my time's worth $50 an hour, suddenly it's not worthwhile. Right. So where is that defining line for you? So collection agencies would probably be the simplest answer. Uh, and, you know, just making sure that you follow all the steps to get a judgment and get it on their credit. Uh, one of my fun little stories was a tenant I evicted in 2007. Um, ended up getting a, used an eviction service company, got a judgment against him. He owed me some money. He reached out to me. It was roughly three, four years later and sent me an email. Still had my email address. He was living out in DC and he said, uh, I illegally put a judgment on his credit and he was going to have his lawyer come after me if I didn't have it removed immediately because he was trying to buy a car. And my response was, you know, that is perfect. Um, if you could have your lawyer reach out to me um, with this uh, initial stuff, it would be great because there's actually additional damages I needed to come after you with. And once I have <laughs> the information, I can, I can use that as a, a place to serve you. He disappeared. Um, it was probably three, four months later, he got back to me and said, how much do I owe you? Because he still needed to buy that car. And yeah. I, you know, it was almost four years later, I finally got a check for the original judgment. You know, that's not an everyday occurrence. Um, mm -hmm. I've heard of with similar stories. Once you get that judgment on their credit, you know, some tenants don't care, will never have credit, will never need credit. Other tenants, their situations turn around and suddenly they need to buy a car, they need to get a mortgage, and they can't do anything until they get that judgment cleaned up. So, Or it will also warn other landlords about their past history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously you can avoid that by, by pre, when you're pre-screening and you're doing the credit checks. If they have crappy credit, stay away from them because they probably don't care about it very much in the future. Just another, you know, another yeah. layer. No, but just I, I, I wanted to ask you real quick, sorry, um, and maybe I missed it. When you were referring to the person that moved to BC and he was trying to buy a car, did you register that writ of enforcement that you got with your judgment at the registry? No. Was that in Alberta? Back then, uh, as part of the process, it just shows up on their, their credit report. It gets registered once you do all the appropriate oh, Okay. Uh, it'll show that they have a judgment. And if you use something like uh, single key or, or neighborly, these types of judgments will all show up on their, their gotcha. report. Okay. And, and, and my other question was going to be, you know, a lot of times you can register that writ of enforcement at the Alberta registry, which prevents them from renewing their uh, their license from a lot of other things, obviously like, you know, getting anything involved with credit, right? Where um, they're trying to get a credit card, they're trying to get a new phone, they're trying to get a vehicle. They need to fix that first before. Am I, am I, am I explaining that correctly? Uh, to a degree. I'm not entirely sure on that process. They keep on changing the rules. Mm -hmm. you know, even with the RTDRS now, um, and uh, this is causing some, some confusion, but the RTDRS, before we had to go into these hearings all the time and now it's all online. So they've streamlined and automated. So they're processing a lot of the paperwork different than they used to before. So they're mm -hmm. automatic filing the stuff with the, the courts for us instead of us having to do some of the paperwork running. So uh, we think word on the street is that they're going to continue with this process because they found out it's streamlined everything and it's making things easier for everybody. Um, so I'm waiting to discover whether I have to, re-edit my guide again or not. I gotta <laughs> wait until we make a decision. So 
I've I've personally got a couple of judgments that like they were they were not worth my time. So I've just been kind of holding them. And I know that I've got a couple of years that I can always go back and you know what I mean, file for the writs and and go after them. But um, you know, I'm I'm also kind of waiting for those people to kind of turn their lives around a little bit so that I might actually have some luck actually getting that money. Yeah, blood from a stone, right? If you if you take the last of the money they have, they can't move forward to get you any other money. Exactly. So you you got to pick your spots and devote your energy to where it will work. Yeah. Well, this is this is a super long podcast, but it was like jam packed full of like awesome nuggets. Um, thank you so much for sharing your story and inspiring and 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 all this valuable um, content and information. If if anyone's looking to get in touch with you. Uh, whether that be, you know, some education or or just to ask more questions, how, how do they reach out to you? They can reach me at uh, info at theeducatedlandlord.com or they can visit me at albertaeviction.com. Awesome, awesome. Bill, thank you so much again for being on the show and um, hope you have a great day. All right. Well, thanks, Wayne. Uh, thank you for doing this. I mean, uh, I've listened to quite a few of these uh, uh, recordings that you've done and you've got some great information out there and you're doing a lot of good stuff out there. So thank you for supporting the, the landlords and the investors out there. <laughs> Gabby, uh, Gabby actually was watching at the very beginning. She said that, you know, we've been following your content for the longest time. Like, why did it take so long for us to have you on the podcast? I don't know, to be honest, you were on my list, but I just been like, I've been getting so many emails that people wanted to be on the podcast. I never actually got back to my list of people that i wanted that i've been meaning to reach out to so i'm so so glad i did well awesome and uh thanks again for having me and uh i'm sure we're going to talk again and thanks kathy and barb and everybody else who's listening all right bye-bye have a great day